Chris. And I'm Ash. And we're Modus Operandi. A mostly true crime podcast. Yeah, mostly. <laughs> so today we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, we're going to talk about a true disaster and a time when Mother Nature struck back at us. So I've like loved environmental science since uh, I was in high school and Ms. Kasulu like really was amazing and really kind of got me into this. Today we're going to talk about the Great Smog of 1952. Those of you who watch The Crown and that's kind of your thing, there was an episode in the first season that like talked about this disaster, this thing that happened in London. Um, I've not seen the show, but apparently it was, it was a thing. I did watch the show, and I felt like that was probably their worst episode, honestly. Interesting take on it. Hot take. Hot take. I don't know if that's a hot take. I don't know that anybody would say that's the best episode. I haven't I, seen the last one, though. Yeah. Either way, it's it's... It's interesting that they, like, took this into account, like, it was that big of a deal, that they, like... Oh, yeah, I think it was, like, early-ish on in the Queen's reign, so they were like, oh, yeah, this is one of the first big disasters that she had to handle. Yeah. Well, at least, I think that was, like, what, how they were trying to frame it, which sure. actually would have been the... I mean, uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, apparently, um, colloquially, a fog like this would be called a pea soup. That term just kind of gives me the ics because it's literally like a visual of you like just wading through pea soup. And I don't like peas, first of all. But second of all, that just seems like an awful, horrible experience. A weird part to be very stuck up on. Not like the whole disaster of it or like right. I mean, breathing all of it in. It's just, peas, peas. <laughs> I love peas. I mean, there's a lot about this whole thing that is awful to me, but like calling it a pea soup is just... I don't like it. I just don't like it. Um, there's a lot of peas in British food. I don't know if you can Yeah, do dude, they love beans. I don't like baked beans at all, but they love beans on toast. And that was one of Princess Diana's favorite snacks was beans on toast. What does that have to do with peas? Nothing. They just like that type of food. Bees and peas. Pe beans and peas. Peas and peas. I can't imagine eating baked beans for breakfast. I feel like that's they where do. they lose me. They do. They love it. So let's set up the scene just a little bit here. It's the 1950s. We're looking at the the height of the of the age for a nuclear family. Bowler hats were in. Televisions were still relatively new. Cars were lacking electronics. I kind of liked the nuclear age thing though, because I feel like in the 50s, like everybody thought nuclear was gonna be a thing. And then if you've played Fallout, that's like kind of the premise of it is that yeah. nuclear takes over instead of electricity. Nice. And it's all like very 50s vibes. I like that. Nuclear age. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, the month is December. Christmas is right around the corner. And there's no better way to describe London than post-war hustle and bustle. The baby boomers were everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Wait, maybe making the baby boomers? Yeah, they're children. The baby boomers are kids. Oh. Um, so, like I said, London is famous for their foggy, dreary days. That's, that's what you expect when you go to London. Um, but this particular day, 
there was a specific pattern of weather-related events and a massive amount of people just trying to stay warm in the bitter cold, so they're burning a lot of coal in their fireplaces. But nobody could have really predicted it to get this bad. So something called an anticyclone moved into the area and trapped the dense fog in the atmosphere, like around the city. So there's no air movement. It's just like hot, or cold actually, wet, just, it's just, it's sitting. It's not moving at all. There's no airflow whatsoever. What creates the anticyclone, or what kind of a weather event is that? I think anticyclone is what they call the weather event. Um, hold up, I guess I, I just meant, like, how, how are the winds and the clouds and such, like, moving to create this, like, empty, dense, windless corridor? Because that feels... Yeah, so the dictionary definition of an anticyclone is a weather system with high atmospheric pressure at its center around which air slowly cir circulates in a clockwise direction. Um, and anticyclones are associated with calm, fine weather. So I guess just the anticyclone is just means that there's weather like circulating around it. Like, so okay. you know, when you're in a pool and like you go around. Oh, that would be a cyclone. It just, it traps, it's like, it's created this little bubble. So like things are trapped in it. Like a tornado would chill instead of aggro. Yeah, so like, everything inside around the swirling part is just stuck there. There's no movement. Um, so it can't get out. Okay. I've never been that far from the ocean, I guess. Because I've yeah. never, like, experienced anything. Like, there's always a breeze. Yes, always, always. Very always. directional. Yes. <laughs> So, the the air is trapped in this place. People are trying to stay warm because it's freezing. It's December in London. So, everybody is just shoveling coal in their fireplaces to stay warm. And this is creating thick plumes of carbon dioxide. And it's mixing with the fog. And inside, the carbon dioxide mixes with the nitrogenous... Nit Nitrogenous weather system. Sorry, I'm not a scientist. Yes, I'm trying to explain this as best as I understand. <laughs> so the the carbon dioxide mixes with the nitrogen. It creates droplets of sulfuric acid and incorporates them into the thickest fog ever seen at this point in history. Full of sulfuric acid. Full of sulfuric acid. Yes. So you're like it's a very important part. <laughs> so you're basically like walking through essentially like a house fire is like the best way I understood it, right? Like I mean, yeah, it's it's a very mild acid, but like in high concentrations, like it's gonna hurt. Like your yeah. lungs are gonna burn, your skin's gonna get irritated. Yes. I mean it's your eyes gonna, are gonna sting. It's gonna like even like there was infrastructure damage from, from this Right. Like think acid rain on steroids. Yes. Because it's just sitting there just eating at things. Um, and research credit to Rinyi Zhang from Texas A&M for that explanation. Five days. Like, the fog was just sitting on top of the city, on top of these people for five days. You can't see in front of you. Visibility was as little as three feet. But in the articles written in the days after, the fog was 15 inches of visibility. So, like, you literally could not see your hand, like, in front of your face. There were probably, like, pockets. Because that happens, like, when there's fog, you just get pockets of really dense fog, and yeah. then you get pockets of thinner fog, so they're probably measuring 
at the thinnest portions, because at three feet, and then, like, at the thinnest, at the thickest portion, so, like, the 15 inches. Yeah. So it's probably somewhere in the middle for, like, most of your traveling, I would guess. Well, people were, I mean, they're still trying to live their lives in this fog, because, as we're going to talk about later, London is no, like, stranger to having really foggy days. They're, they're used to having to work through these kinds of things. Um... Plus, we can afford to take that much time. Like, five days? That's a whole week's worth of pay. Like, we can't just... Yeah, and this is... Yeah, they they can't afford it. People are driving, like, essentially convoys down in the streets to try and get where they need to go. Um, There were some people that just completely abandoned their vehicle because they couldn't see. That didn't create dangerous road conditions at all. Oh, it was bad. Some people were abandoning their cars. Um, Some people were crashing into pedestrians, um, into other vehicles, uh, just crazy stuff. There were instances of, like, conductors getting out to use a road flare to help guide the buses, and there's actually a picture of that if you want to see it. Oh, yeah, they um, showed some of the pictures in the show, and they also, like, staged some of the, like, things like that. Like, that was one Mm -hmm. of the things that they had, like, staged recreate. Yeah. Yeah, so um the only like transportation that was really working is the underground subway. Like not the train station, but like the subway underground where they had exact control over who was going where. Um I wish we had a subway like that. I know, wouldn't that be amazing? I'm so thirsty for trains. <laughs> like I want a train system so bad. It would be pretty cool. It would make my life so much easier. I think it would make everyone's lives so much easier. For sure. So, Londoners, even though they had walked these streets for years, were getting lost. There were people who had to send out search parties. Um, There was even an instance in uh, a story that I saw in a Reader's Digest article where there was a blind man helping people navigate around the area. Because he was the only one with the skill set to, like, work through these issues that he was, that was going on. I so, mean, that's pretty cool, though. Yeah, no, there was a, there was a couple of really cool anecdotes that came out of this disaster, but, um, the fact that it got this bad is just wild. So death tolls rose during those days of the fog. Um, in those five days, 150,000 people were hospitalized. And then I've seen numbers anywhere from 4,000 to 12,000 dead, um, all because of 370 metric tons of CO2 in the city. And I don't think those numbers include, like, the cancer or, like, later, like, long-term deaths. Nope, and we are going to kind of talk about that a little bit, but I don't have, like, solid numbers on that stuff. Right, because nobody has solid numbers on that sort of thing. Right, but yes, this was a very long-term problem. And then just because it was this bad this day doesn't mean that there wasn't, you know, pollution on other days. Yeah, a regular basis. Like a pea super was not uncommon. That's just what it was called when they had this kind of sulfuric. um, I think this was just like the thickest and the longest. Yes, this was the the big one. Um so the sulfuric acid was getting into the lungs and wreaked havoc on the respiratory system. Not to mention, there were fine particles that were composed in the in the coal, like lead, affecting the nervous system much longer term. Um, 
so this went on for, like I said, five days. So between December 5th and December 9th, um, the, the entire city basically was in chaos and eventually grinded to a halt. Um, when the fog did finally lift, there is a thick layer of soot that covered everything. Millions of dollars of structural damage. And London was in a full state of emergency, having hospitals overwhelmed with sick people and having to, have to, organi having to organize a citywide cleanup effort. Um, I imagine this is the reason that they show everyone in those old London movies covered in, in dirt and soot all the time. <laughs> like, I, I just... I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I feel like the only time I've ever thought of, like, someone in London being covered in dirt and soot is, like, Bert. From Mary, Mary Poppins. Poppins. Chimney sweeps, and they were covered in soot because they were chimney sweeps. Right, which makes sense. This is a logical thing. Essentially, Parliament's response during and immediately after the disaster was basically none. <laughs> um, during the situation, they kind of had this attitude that pea supers happen all the time, and it wasn't until after the fog lifted and they were really starting to get death counts and you know, data on how bad this was, that they were like, okay, maybe we should do something about this. Right. So from that point, they did agree that something needed to change, something needed to happen. And a few years later, after much political debate, a clean air, the Clean Air Act um, was born in 1956. Um, from what I understand, I'm no professional, but from what I understand... Churchill? Yes. Mm -hmm. Churchill was, like, super against the whole thing. Yeah, basically, he was what today we would refer to as a climate denier. Um, climate denier. That makes sense. That actually makes sense. Yeah. So, he was, he like, he's looking at, like, small-scale, like, this is how, like, coal is, like, a very much a part of London's, like, infrastructure and history, and, um... It's how, it's the cheapest way to heat your homes. He's looking at, like, a lot of people work in the coal industry around here. Coal has been a big part of London since, like, the Middle Ages. So, like, he's looking at the deep-rooted history. Um, I mean, that's great. But if everybody was like, well, this is how we've historically done it, there would never be any progress on anything. Yeah. And this one is, you know, like, actively killing people, so. Right. And, I mean, London's old. Like, they don't have... Their homes are not really set up for newer age um, ways of heating and cooling their houses. So, Fair. it's just, like, it's a part of their culture. You sit around the hearth of the fire and you, you know, like, it's just, it's part of the whole thing. So, anyways, in, in 1956, the Clean Air Act was born. It was passed through Parliament. Um, in an effort to control London's smog problem. It gave local authorities the ability to govern um, if there was, basically they could be fined if there was a thick smog coming out of the stacks of the houses, and if businesses had too much, then there was a governing system for them as well. Um, they could also be fined and uh, all that stuff. It also created the Beaver Committee, which was basically put together to help make recommendations for cleaner air and less pollution. Like, longer term. I feel um, like they implemented a Clean Air Act, like, 
pretty early on, and yet they're still, like, not as far as I think they could go. They should be farther, considering how they started. Yeah, because this they're the ones that started it for other countries. Like, they did it, and then about ten years later, America had their first one. And then right now, even still today, India and China are still trying to battle with how to deal with this problem because they're having basically the same thing happen in their cities, which is why it's kind of still, this is still a relevant conversation today. So what I thought was the most interesting thing is right after the fog, this is the 50s, right? So they're going to capitalize on everything. (laughs) So they started putting up ads and... I'm going to show you this picture. It was a smog mask. Every woman needs one. So Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's literally like an accessory. It's funny because... They would have enjoyed the 2020s. Yeah, I was about to say, it's funny because now that's a thing that we're doing. You know, we buy masks with certain uh, characters on them or patterns and stuff. We kind of make it part of our outfit. Mine has sphinxes. The, 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 the naked things. Yeah, so um, I just thought that was really funny and interesting is that they were putting out ads for these these masks to help. Um, and actually there was, again, more drama uh, because Churchill basically wanted scientists and other members of Parliament to come out and say that the masks didn't do anything, which is, again, so funny to me because... Oh, so he was a climate denier and also probably would have been anti-mask. Yes. <laughs> He's just really racking up the points there, Churchill. Yeah, it was just really, really amusing for me to like read that. So longer-term numbers. There were studies done like in the years after the Great Smog, and we found out that if they were infants at the time of the London Fog in 1952, the babies were 20% more likely as they got older to suffer from asthma and other respiratory issues. If the babies were in utero at the time of the the Great Fog, they're 10% more likely to have asthma and other respiratory issues. And still even now, they're using this situation as a formula, as a um, kind of backing to choose how to manage other countries' laws and regulations and stuff. Um, China and India, like I said earlier, are having the greatest battle with these kinds of difficulties because there are several cities that they're having huge smog problems, and actually it's kind of worse in China because they have different gases that are creating different problems um, on top of the sulfuric acid gas. Uh, I don't know what to say. Like, in the 50s, at least this was, like, semi new information. Like, yeah. they didn't really get it. I feel like at this point, it's been so many decades, you haven't fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> if you have all the knowledge that you need, yeah, you can do something about it, or you can do nothing about it. So. Yeah. But this blueprint, this thing just happened to be a blueprint for other disasters to come similar to this one. Um, this was kind of the first one that made people go, huh, maybe we should uh, regulate some things. So anyways, I thought that was really interesting. And then, of course, during everything, there was looters. Of course there were. So that was fun. Why wouldn't there be? Yeah. The thievery was out of control. I mean, I suppose it would be really easy to escape. Yeah. You just run into the fog. Yeah. 
But yeah, to be fair to Churchill and all the Parliament people, like in their heads, this is stuff they deal with all the time. They didn't really realize because you know they're in their like little Parliament houses, <laughs> like they're not really having to commute and having to deal with like the day to day effects of this. So, you know, to them, it's just another bad fog. They're like, damn, this sucks. I feel like they had to like look out a window. <laughs> It wasn't until after that they kind of even addressed it publicly. Bury your head in the sand, but the water always rises again. <laughs> so, yeah. That's the great smog. Pea Super of 1952. They do have Pea Super smogs. It is. I told you. So, do you have anything sciencey to add to this? Because uh, I did the best I could with it. Science is everywhere. That was very insightful. Thank you, Ashley. <laughs> Just listen to the people that know what they're talking about. I didn't do a whole lot of environmental science. My area was animal behavior and, for a minute, epidemiology. And also dipped into ecology a little bit because I couldn't focus. That's why it took me well, six I, years to graduate because I kept changing my focus. I feel like epidemiology is relevant to this problem. Sort of. What diseases are we talking about? What's the disease? We're talking about... Respiratory diseases okay, and that's like true, but like lead poisoning and shit. Longer term. I mean, it affects on the nervous system and the yeah. brain. Stuff. It would definitely would have been studied by an epidemiologist, probably if that's what I was going to say. Boom. Just to be a bad butt. There's nothing for me to add on the front. <laughs> so yeah, um, that was really dumb. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. So, yeah, uh, environmental science stuff, we need to think about it and do stuff. Very insightful. Yeah. <laughs> See you guys next time. Yeah, I'm kind of glad we both did, like, uh, English London stuff today, this week. Very good. Yeah. Okay, bye.